Welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, where together we will explore the origins, battles, campaigns, significant individuals, and consequences of the American Civil War. My name is Sean, and this is Episode 2, Crisis at Fort Sumter, Part 1. At 4.30 a.m. on April 12, 1861, a 67-year-old Virginian by the name of Edmund Ruffin, a diehard secessionist and farm paper editor, pulled a lanyard on one of the cannons located at Cummings Point in Charleston Harbor. With this shot, a red parabolic arc drew against the pre-dawn sky and with its burst betrayed the outline of the intended target of the cannoneers, Fort Sumter. With this action, Edmund Ruffin did his part to inaugurate the bloodiest war in American history and who later stated to a local paper, quote, I was delighted to have performed the service. Fort Sumter is a name in American history that will forever be tied to the start of the American Civil War. The events in the weeks and days preceding up to that fateful moment in the pre-dawn hours of April 12, 1861, were full of politics, intrigue, espionage, diplomacy, moral cowardice, overconfidence, and fatalism. Before we get into all of that, however, we must first set the stage. Fort Sumter was named after the American Revolutionary War hero, Brigadier General Thomas Sumter, who lived from August 14, 1734 to June 1, 1832, and served both in the Virginia and South Carolina militias during his life. In addition to those life accomplishments, he was also a planter and politician. After the United States gained its independence from Great Britain, he was elected to the United States House of Representatives and later to the United States Senate, where he served from 1801 to 1810 and at which point he finally retired. Sumter was nicknamed the Carolina Gamecock for his fierce fighting style against British soldiers after they burned down his house during the Revolution. After the American Revolution, the American Congress quickly developed a reputation for being stingy with defense spending in general and particularly with naval spending, deciding to invest in a series of fixed land-based fortification systems at critical harbors along the coast to strengthen the nation's maritime defenses. However, by 1816, following the lessons learned as a result of the War of 1812, the United States began constructing its third system, yes you heard me right, third system of forts and fortifications along its coastline in order to protect everything that the first two investments into coastal defenses had failed to accomplish. To fill these voids, Congress and the United States Army Corps of Engineers planned the construction of around 200 additional fortifications primarily located along the Atlantic and Gulf Coast from Maine to Louisiana. Over 40 of these fortifications were built before construction was halted with the outbreak of the American Civil War. So when you hear or read about the third system of seacoast defense, this is where Fort Sumter and Fort Pickens, among others, found their beginnings. Construction on the man-made island on which Fort Sumter would eventually be built began in 1829 and was incomplete when the sectional tensions tearing at the fabric of the young republic came to a head during the last few months of 1860. The crisis that unfolded and led to this moment in the early morning of April 12th began five months before with the election of Abraham Lincoln in November of 1860. Following the election on November 6th, the South Carolina General Assembly on November 10th call for a convention of the people of South Carolina for the purpose of considering an act of secession. Delegates to this convention were elected on December 6th. The secession convention then convened in Columbia, South Carolina, 
on December 17th and quickly voted unanimously, as it turned out, 169 to 0, to declare secession from the United States. The convention then adjourned to Charleston in order to draft the Ordinance of Secession. With the formal adoption of that ordinance on December 20th, South Carolina became the first southern state to declare that it had seceded from the Union. Following this, on December 24, 1860, a committee of the South Carolina Secession Convention drafted a Declaration of the Immediate Causes which Induce and Justify the Secession of South Carolina, which was adopted later that same day. The Secession Declaration stated the primary reasoning behind South Carolina's actions as the, quote, increasing hostility on part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery, unquote. On December 25th, the day following South Carolina's Declaration of Secession, the South Carolina Convention then delivered an address to the slaveholding states, which declared, quote, We prefer, however, our system of industry by which labor and capital are identified in interest, and capital therefore protects labor by which our population doubles every 20 years, by which starvation is unknown and abundance crowns the land, by which order is preserved by unpaid police and the most fertile regions of the world, where the white man cannot labor, are brought into usefulness by the labor of the African, and the whole world is blessed by our own productions. We ask you to join us in forming a confederacy of slaveholding states. In answer to this call they did, between January 9th and February 1st, 1861, the seven states of the Lower South held their state conventions and drafted their Articles of Secession. In order, they were Mississippi on January 9th, Florida, January 10th, Alabama, January 11th, Georgia, January 19th, Louisiana, January 26th, and finally followed by Texas on February 1st. Together, these seven states sent delegates to Montgomery, Alabama, where between February 4th and 17th, 1861, these delegates met to draft a provisional constitution and elect a provisional government which consisted of a unicameral legislature in addition to a Confederate president and vice president. The question of who the provisional Confederate president would be was settled following a significant amount of intrigue, especially with the fire eaters, that had done everything in their power to ferment the crisis now upon the nation. The Montgomery Convention delegates chose as their provisional president a political moderate by comparison, a West Point graduate, Mexican war veteran, former U.S. Senator from Mississippi and War Department Secretary. Enter, from stage right, Jefferson Davis. Now while all that was going on, other intrigues and developments were taking place. Major Robert Anderson, a 35-year career Army officer, a native-born Kentuckian, former slave owner, desperately wanted to avoid starting a civil war in a place where all it would take was one small spark to ignite the powder keg in Charleston, South Carolina. He knew that if it was going to start, it was going to start here, in Charleston. He also knew, once the flag he served was fired upon and blood shed, his honor and duty would require him to resist, and there would be, at that point, no stopping the momentum toward war. Before we continue with the narrative, we need to take a few minutes and orientate ourselves to where everything is in relation to each other. So, you may not have a map of Charleston Harbor readily available as you listen to this podcast, so I'm going to do my best to describe to you where important places are in relation to Fort Sumter. 
Charleston Harbor's orientation is southeast to northwest, and at the northwest end of the harbor is the city of Charleston itself, which is located on a peninsula with the Ashley River defining its southern boundary as it moves inland in a general northwest direction, and the Cooper River on its northern end of the peninsula moving in a generally northerly direction. Now if we leave the city of Charleston and travel to the southeast approximately four to four and a half miles, you will find yourself at the harbor entrance, where you will then enter the Atlantic Ocean. And at approximately three to three and a half miles is where you will encounter a man-made island on which Fort Sumter is built. Using Fort Sumter as our main reference point, picture it for the moment as being at the center of a clock. To the 10 o'clock, or northwest, back up the harbor is the city of Charleston. To the 3 and 4 o'clock direction is the harbor entrance with the Atlantic Ocean beyond. To the 2 o'clock is Sullivan's Island. On Sullivan's Island is the site of Fort Moultrie, which for the moment is one of those installations still federally controlled, whose garrison is commanded by Major Robert Anderson. To the 6 o'clock is Morris Island. Now the closest point of Morris Island is also shaped a bit like a peninsula and named Cummings Point a place that will also have significance in the drama that will shortly unfold. From the 7 to 9 o'clock positions is James Island, which, close to the 9 o'clock position, is the direction of Fort Johnson, a fortification overlooking both Charleston Harbor and the mouth of the Ashley River that dates back to the colonial period. Resuming our narrative, one way Anderson realized to avert, at least for a while, this potential calamity was to withdraw his command from the vulnerable position at Fort Moultrie. What makes this position so vulnerable is that Fort Moultrie's cannons, in orientation itself, is toward the water, i.e. the harbor and the harbor entrance. Its purpose, like that of Fort Sumter and Fort Johnson, is to defend the harbor from an attack by a hostile ship or fleet, not to defend itself from the very people it was designed or intended to protect. That, however, is the very situation that Major Anderson now finds himself in, in the days immediately following South Carolina's secession declaration on December 20th. Major Anderson does what any good officer would do, assesses the situation, realizes that in the parlance of today's military doctrine, the operational environment has changed as a result of the actions of the South Carolinians, and concludes his primary position at Fort Moultrie is indefensible. Looking out over the harbor is a far safer and far more defensible position in the form of Fort Sumter, even though this installation is not yet complete, nor has it been equipped with all the cannons designed to have, in fact only half of them, and that reality has more to do with the military downsizing supported by the current administration of President James Buchanan. So Major Anderson, in keeping with some of the best traditions of the United States Army in executing desperate military operations around the Christmas holiday, evacuates his garrison on December 26th which consists of Company E and Company H of the 1st United States Artillery Regiment, under the cover of darkness from Fort Moultrie. After spiking the cannons left behind to make them inoperable, and then moves his unit to Fort Sumter on his own initiative. As I'm sure you've already guessed, once the South Carolinians realized what he had done, you can just imagine the anger and seething rage of the population of Charleston and the government of South Carolina had for him at this point. I am sure some of that rage had just as much to do with the fact that he had beaten them to the race to secure Fort Sumter as it did with the fact that they hadn't moved fast enough themselves to secure it. The December 28th edition of the Charleston Mercury 
makes it clear that the citizens of Charleston were quite indignant upon learning of, of the abandonment of Fort Moultrie and the subsequent damage left behind, and Major Anderson's transfer and occupation of Fort Sumter. That indignation quickly turns into action, with state troops quickly occupying not only Fort Moultrie, but the other fortifications in and around the harbor. And this is where we shall leave off for this week's episode. With Abraham Lincoln as the President-elect of the United States, South Carolina issuing its Declaration of Secession from the Union, Major Anderson quietly pulling off the occupation of Fort Sumter, and with the resulting stirring of the hornet's nest in its wake, as state troops of South Carolina quickly occupy the abandoned fortifications in and around Charleston Harbor, leading to the beginning of the standoff. And next time, we shall continue our narrative with part two of the crisis at Fort Sumter. See you then.